This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? <laughs> Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? The Return from Hiatus. <laughs> and you said I spent, it right. I spent, I spent August learning how to say hiatus. Even the slow learners figured it out eventually. That's good. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. And we're back. And we are back. We are. So that, that's what the hell is going on. We are back from a hiatus. It is September and things are... Uh, Things are worse than they were when we, t- we went on hiatus in so many ways. So we're, what we're talking about today is this Biden student loan fiasco. And uh, the word fiasco is almost overused when it comes to the Biden administration. And yet not. <laughs> it is an absolute fiasco. I mean, he, he is, as Jason Furman, Obama economic advisor, said he's pouring half a trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that's already burning, which he called reckless. I mean, inflation is the number one issue on Americans' minds. It's Inflation is a regressive tax. It hits the, the poor and the working class the worst. And he is fueling inflation on the poor and the working class, people who are choosing between gas and food every week because the costs are so high, by giving massive $10,000, $20,000 checks to people Households making up to $250,000 a year, people who have a gra- graduate school loans, law school, business school, medical school. It's literally a reverse Robin Hood plan. It's taking from the poor and giving to the rich. It's gross. I'm sorry. That's a good word. One of the things that we hated and that we complained about incessantly during the Trump administration was the president's assertion of powers that he did not have. And we, we still see that. And, you know, Mark and I went back and forth between whether to talk about all of the Mar-a-Lago nightmare, which we'll come to uh, in another podcast, or whether to talk about the inflationary fire that's burning. And uh, especially as we go into winter, we're going to be hearing more and more about it. And we came down on talking about that. But this is what Biden and, and Trump have in common. And it, it's funny, you know, I think probably most people last week read about the sort of weird Darth Vader speech that President Biden gave, it's flanked by two Marines and bathed in red light as if somehow, you know, he was in hell as opposed to the rest of us being in hell. And <laughs> and one of the commentators, one of the commentators said, the worst thing about Joe Biden is that he's become Donald Trump. And, you know, they were talking about the melodrama. They were talking about the ridiculous assertions uh, about about the president's political enemies. They were talking about that. But of course, what really is outrageous is not the, you know, the flim flam. It's the lawlessness uh, of this administration. I don't I don't get it. Why is there not more outrage? The same people who said it was absolutely outrageous for Donald Trump to use a national emergency declaration on the border to circumvent Congress for building the wall, are now celebrating Joe Biden as he circumvents Congress to spend up to a trillion dollars. I mean, just think about that. What an assault that is on the Constitution and and the Congress's power of the purse. Nancy Pelosi last July said, uh, quote, people think the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have that power. That has to be an act of Congress. How have we gotten to the point where a commander in chief, the president of the United States, can spend a trillion dollars, up to a trillion dollars, which is what they, what the Penn Wart model says, it's going to be between 603 billion and, uh, and a trillion dollars. Let's say it's 603 billion. How does the president have the authority to spend $603 billion without Congress? We just had a huge fight over the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed with a reconciliation bill that was half a trillion dollars. And that was like, they spent a year trying to get Joe Manchin to go along with that. And now just with the, just with his pen, he just signs an executive order, spend, uh, you know, between half a trillion and a trillion dollars by executive fiat. What, I mean, what, what are we, a banana republic? 
Well, we are actually. And, and I will say this is, this is an outrageous grab of constitutional authority from Congress. But where the hell is Congress? You know, we've complained about this endlessly. And by the way, people, folks, we're, we are going to actually talk about the economic implications of writing off people's university and, and grad school loans during our interview. But I just ask myself, where is the Congress of the United States? Nancy Pelosi, as you, you quoted her saying that the president doesn't have this authority, and then she praised the president for doing it. When I'm sorry, you know, Mark and I spend way too much time like old people going when we were young. But damn it, when we were young, it didn't matter who was trying to usurp the authority of the Congress, whether it was a president from your own party or the president from another party, you hauled them up and let them know what was what and you punished them for it. And this Congress is just like, oh, well, if it's okay, if it's a Democrat, that's fine. If it's Donald Trump, that's illegal. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get into why it's inflationary, why it's regressive, why it's unfair, why it's unaffordable and all the rest of that. But here's my biggest complaint about it. It's an act of stolen valor. I mean, the legal pretext that the president has chosen for this is that he's invoked a 2003 Heroes Act, which is a law that was passed after the 9-11 attacks to support men and women who decided to put on the uniform and go fight the terrorists who attacked us on September 11 and make sure that they didn't default on their loans because they could, because they put on the uniform and went to fight in Afghanistan and other fronts in the war on terror. The law, I went and looked up the HEROES Act and, and this is what the law states. It said it's designed to help quote, hundreds of thousands of army, air force, Marine Corps, Navy and Coast Guard reservists and members of the National Guard who have been called to active duty or active service and ask, quote, to put their lives on hold, leave their families, jobs, and post-secondary education in order to serve the country. It authorizes the Secretary of Education to modify or forgive their loans on a case-by-case basis, quote, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency, regardless of the location at which such active duty service is performed. 2007, Congress made the authority permanent and explicitly said it was intended to address the unique situations that active duty military personnel and other affected individuals face. So this is a, he is taking a law that was intended to help men and women in our military who were going into active duty to fight to defend the country and giving it to a bunch of people who are not heroes, who took on loans they can't afford or loans they can't afford and now will not have to pay back who never wore the uniform and giving them broader benefits than they did. Because in the case of of the military, it was a case-by-case basis. This is a blanket debt forgiveness for people in some cases, households making up to $250,000. He's turning an entire generation of Americans into military imposters. So this is literally stolen valor, taking benefits that were intended for the men and women of the military and giving it to people who didn't render that military service. No, no. It, you wrote a great piece about this in the Washington Post. And I mean, look, I used the word gross before, and it is, it's gross. It's gross in so many regards, but just, you know, the erosion of standards, the erosion of rule of law, the erosion of understanding about how our government ought to work and who our government ought to serve and who they answer to is just, you know, something, it, it makes you despair. It really does. Because, you know, I really, I wanted to believe that Obama was an aberration. Then I wanted to believe that Trump was an aberration. I can't keep lying to myself. This isn't an aberration in our country. This is what we've become. And yeah, some attorney general, you know, some member of Congress, some aggrieved student, I don't know who has the standing, may actually have the standing to sue over this, but it's not just this. It's everything that happened during COVID. It's the fact that they're spending $80 billion to increase the size of the IRS. It's the fact that teachers unions wrote our COVID rules. It's all of these things that just give me the sense that the pillars of this government and of this system are, are crumbling. Maybe I, I'm being too, too apocalyptic. Well, uh, no, I don't think you are, but I think I don't want to break the kumbaya moment, but this is, I mean, this is uniquely bad. And I, I guess I guess it's maybe it's just getting worse with each administration because all the things you just cited, you know, Obama didn't spend a trillion dollars 
without authority from Congress. I mean, at least, you know, Obamacare and the stimulus and all those, those were passed by Congress. To spend a trillion dollars without congressional authority as a unique assault on the power of the purse of Congress that none of his predecessors have done. And here's the problem we face. I mean, I don't want to go down a political rabbit hole. It's just people in this country who don't necessarily want Donald Trump to come back into the White House. Our country doesn't have a Democratic Party that presents a palatable alternative. Your choice in this country is right now is between, you know, Trumpism and a Democratic Party that has gone off the rails <laughs> in terms wow. of the, the amount of money it wants to spend, the assault on the powers. And I think you said it best is that, that, you know, he's becoming Trump. You know, he promised to unite us and he gives a speech basically labeling 74 million people who voted for Trump as, as the enemy of the country. He criticizes Trump for a much smaller abuse of executive authority in building the border wall and then spends a trillion, almost a trillion dollars on student debt by executive fiat. The alternative is worse today because they're not giving people who are caught in the middle of this any safe harbor yeah. anywhere. And we're getting caught between this vice. And once again, I see the 2024 election, another you know trolley problem. Well, uh, you know, again, uh, I'm not sure the Republican Party is giving anybody a much more attractive alternative at this point, but well, that's not that's that's not why we're here. We are here. <laughs> we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Joe Biden. <laughs> And we're here to talk about this student loan disgrace. So let's talk about it. We've got repeat star, guest star of our podcast, Mike Swain, who's AEI's Director of Economic Studies. He's a columnist for Bloomberg, and he is one of our favorite explainers. So we asked him to come and explain to us exactly what the hell is going on with these student loans. Here's his explanation. (laughs) Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you. So President Biden has unveiled this massive student loan forgiveness plan. Good idea, bad idea? Well, it's a it's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> that, that wasn't an option. <laughs> I didn't like the options you gave me, so I created okay, my own. There you go. Um, I like that. It, it's, it's bad, I think, for our system of higher education finance. It's bad in the sense that, you know, ultimately it will be a transfer of wealth to some degree from people who didn't uh, go to college to people who did, uh, many of whom will be in, in, in the middle class. It's bad for what it says about the rule of law in our country. Uh, it's bad for the economy as a whole. It's bad, 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 bad. Wow, that's an awful lot of bad. Thanks. First of all, thank you, Mike, for joining us, uh, especially because it's, you know, Labor Day. But it is a good day to talk about the American worker. I mean, one of the things that, that you've written and that others have also written, and that's not even talking about not the deficit, not inflation, not the president's legal authority, all of which are in question. But the wholesale transfer of wealth from the poor to the much less poor. And I think it's worthwhile for for people to understand this, because I think there are a lot of people who are like, hey, this is kind of cool. You know, great. Took out a loan. Now I'm working, you know, at Goldman Sachs or, you know, on Capitol Hill. And, uh, you know, Joe Blow, the FedEx driver, is going to be paying my, my loan off. Explain to people exactly how that works. Yeah, so this loan forgiveness will go to the households with incomes as high as $250,000. It will go to individuals with uh, incomes that are as high as half that. Uh, In order to qualify, you have to have student loans. Poor people go to college at much lower rates than middle-class people or upper-middle-class people. And so if you look at people who actually hold student loans, they have a higher expected lifetime income than people than people who don't on average. Think of somebody who borrowed money to go get a college degree, somebody who borrowed money to go to dental school, somebody who borrowed money to go get an MBA, uh, these sorts of folks. Um, they may be you know, earning fifty or sixty thousand dollars in the year or two after they graduate, um, they may they may have very low income while they're in school, 
but over the course of their lifetimes, they're going to earn uh, significantly higher incomes than people who didn't go to college. And so this money will be borrowed and that borrowed money will be paid back through higher taxes in the future, through lower spending in the future, through higher inflation in the future. And that's going to hit everybody. And so what this amounts to is a transfer of income from a group of people who, you know, on average have relatively less wealth and relatively lower incomes to a group of people who on average have relatively higher incomes and and who will be uh, relatively wealthier. I just want to jump on one thing you said there, because you talked about the six figure incomes, but you also said it'll pay people who take out business school loans, people who take out dental school loans, people who take out medical school Mm -hmm. loans. This applies to graduate school, not just college, college debt. So you've got cafeteria worker in the local hospital is going to be paying off the medical school loans of the doctors who are working in the hospital. Yeah, to the extent that her taxes go up uh, in the future in order to pay this off or to the extent that her you know, Social Security or Medicare benefits become less generous in order to pay this off or, or just uh, to the extent that, that um, you know, part of the way we deal with debt is through allowing higher inflation to erode the the uh, inflation adjusted value of debt. That's that's right. Um, you know, the administration had a, a number of choices to make when it when it decided to do this. And one of those choices was whether or not to open this policy up to people with with debt from graduate school. And they and they and they chose to do that, which, you know, I think is is just truly indefensible. You know, there's a group of borrowers who I think we can talk about you know, how best to, to provide them assistance. If you are a person who went to a community college, went to, you know, your local Trump university, school, uh, went to Trump university or, or, or to a private uh, for-profit college, and you, you know, racked up 10 or $15,000 of debt, and then you dropped out before you graduated, you have a debt burden, but you also aren't uh, getting the benefit of higher income associated with having graduated, we should talk about policies that can that can offer some financial assistance to people who are in that situation. There are some good options that are worth discussing. I don't think blanket debt forgiveness, even in that situation, is 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 is, is the right way to go. But you can look at reforms to bankruptcy laws, or or you can look at you know reducing the amount of payment that the people in that situation. Uh, oh, you know, based on an updated formula that ties their payments to their income, things of this nature. There, there are things that can be discussed. But, you know, when you're talking about forgiving the debt of households who currently earn a quarter of a million dollars, when you're talking about forgiving the debt that people incur to go to dental school or to go to law school or to go to business school, I think that that really is just indefensible. And, you know, I've been on your excellent podcast before, and I described the American Rescue Plan as the the single biggest fiscal policy mistake in decades. This isn't as bad as the American Rescue Plan, but this is really, really bad. You know, it's bad because of its economic effects, but it's also bad because of what it says about the way that we make public policy, it's bad because of its distributional effects. It's bad because I think it's, you know, a very unjust. Um, and, you know, another another consideration, I mean, you know, why student debt? What about a person who was in, you know, a horrible car accident through no fault of their own and racked up a whole bunch of medical debt? What does the president have to say to that person, what does the president have to say to somebody who served in the military in order to qualify for the GI Bill so that he or she wouldn't incur student debt? What does the president have to say to that person? What does the president have to say to somebody who didn't go on vacations and who didn't buy the kind of automobile they didn't they they wanted and who didn't buy a home in the neighborhood that they wanted in order to pay off their student debt and who just paid it off last year? What does the president have to say to that person who who could have just sat around and and, and waited to get uh, up to twenty thousand dollars? You know, this is this is a very unjust policy. 
Yeah, for people who talk a lot about inequality and who rail about being the representatives of the people, it's staggering. I think I think you're you're right. I don't think anybody thought they were going to do this. Let's just talk about inflation for a second because I think that, you know, everything we talk about has a a political spin to it, you know. And of course, the president did this for political reasons. He did this because the midterms are coming up because he needs to change the narrative about his own incompetence, about people suffering at the pump, about people suffering at home. How is this not inflationary? How is this not adding to the deficit? How is this not ultimately going to make people's lives actually more difficult rather than easier? Well, I think think there's no question that it will be inflationary. It'll be inflationary through a number of channels. You know, part of what the president did was to change the repayment system. So one thing the president did was just wipe away up to 20 grand of debt. Another thing the president did was change the the way that um, that student loan repayment will work uh, in the future. So this will kind of increase the disposable income that people have uh, because they'll be they'll be paying less. They'll be repaying less of their student loan um, uh, debt. This will, that's one, that's one mechanism that will, that will lead to inflation because some of that money will be, will be spent. The second way that this will be inflationary is by increasing the, the wealth of households. You know, you just, the president just gave households $10,000, $20,000, depending on the type of student loan they had. That's, we can think of that as a wealth transfer. We know that people increase their consumption when their wealth goes up. So you have, you have more consumption because incomes will be higher. You have more consumption because wealth will be higher. And then a third mechanism that's been talked about a little bit, those two should kick in immediately. The third mechanism should take a a little while longer to kick in. This will increase inflation by increasing tuition prices. And I think that that's something to certainly keep in mind. Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Um, You said tuition, you know, uh, yes. Your kids are little. Mark has two kids in college. Um, Two more on the way. I will no longer be contributing to my children's 529 plan because I will. uh, What's the point? I will be debt financing their their higher education. But but wait, my daughter that graduated from college last year, uh, she went to Vanderbilt. I've talked about her on the podcast before. My other daughter graduated from Georgetown. Our our son went to a state school, which was cheaper, but um, it was $72,000 a year at Georgetown. It was close to 80000 a year at, at Vanderbilt. My daughter, who is in college now, is looking at paying more than $80,000 a year. Why in all of this conversation have we not talked about the fact that this is also transferring mass wealth to places like Harvard University, which has a well over a billion dollar endowment? Yet these people keep raising their tuition on hardworking Americans yeah, it's that's right. Universities are, especially elite universities, are are very creative at figuring out how to use policy changes like this to their advantage. And you want to raise tuition, but then you want to make loans more affordable in some way, and and you can kind of create a win win situation where the university receives more revenue, and where and where uh, students who have to borrow are not made worse off. You see this in law schools and programs where universities partner with governments to reduce debt burdens for law school graduates who go into public service or medical school graduates who who uh, agree to practice for a certain number of years in rural areas that are underserved by doctors, things of this nature. And so, you know, this, I think, in addition, just in a simple kind of market context, presumably this will increase the demand for college by leading people to expect it will reduce the expense of college. And that simple demand push mechanism should increase uh, the price of the price of tuition as well, even apart from any any um, games that universities might play with the kind of intersection between between tuition prices and, and debt. You know, the, the administration saying this is a one time thing. And if it is a one time thing, then, you know, maybe it, it won't have an effect on, on tuition. But of course, it's not going to be a one-time thing. The the next time there's a primary race for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, they're all going to be tripping over each other to do another round of debt cancellation. And and uh, if it's decided by the courts that the president has the authority to just do this, which I guess is a question mark. I mean, uh, you know, I think that the, I think that many people believe. I'm not a legal 
expert by any stretch, but my sense is that many people believe that the Supreme Court uh, probably wouldn't um, uphold this this executive action. But there's a question about who has who has the standing to um, challenge this in court. If for some reason or another this is this is not struck down by the courts, then I expect it would be become kind of a permanent but irregular feature of uh, higher education policy for at least the next couple of decades. And so, and so it'll be, it'll be inflationary. The question is, the question is how, how much I think, a you know, a, a kind of consensus view seems to be forming that this policy would boost inflation by, you know, say three tenths of a, of a percentage point over the course of the year, something like that. So if inflation was going to be 8%, Inflation now will be eight point three percent. You know that's I, th- I think that's, I think that's significant for sure. You know, especially in the environment that we're in now. But I think that there's a lot of uncertainty around that number. Um, and let me let me explain why. You know, imagine that you are a twenty nine year old who just got his MBA and who you know got a first job earning you know, $100,000 or something like that, you know, you're expecting to earn several times that amount by the time you hit your peak earning years, but um, you're kind of in your first job after you finished your MBA. And so you're feeling good about your kind of lifetime income. You're feeling good about the amount of money that you'll earn over the course of your your lifetime. And the president just handed you a $10,000 check. How much of that do you spend if you're, if you're this person? You know, I don't know, but I think a lot of the analysis that economists are doing to try and forecast the inflationary effect of this assumes that you'll spend 10%. You know, you'll spend $1,000 right away, $2,000 right away. I think that may be true for a lot of people. I think some people might go spend five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars. And I think we just don't know because this is a very unusual policy. If people spend much more of it than economists are assuming, the economists who do these inflation forecasts are assuming, if people spend five thousand dollars or six thousand dollars, you know, imagine you're a, a married couple and you both went to law school. And you graduated law school last year or two years ago, and you're earning, you know, 220 grand, something like that. You know, you're, you're in your early 30s. You've got 30 or 40 more years of work ahead of you. You're feeling very good about the amount of money you'll earn over your lifetime. And you got a $20,000 gift from the president. Um, 40. You know, uh, if you took out Pell Grants, it could be 40. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But imagine you didn't take out Pell Grants and you get, you get 10 grand a piece. Uh, you get a $20,000 gift from the president. Maybe you spend two or $3,000 of that this year, or maybe you spend $15,000 of that this year because it's free money and you are doing very well financially and you have a very solid outlook for your finances over the next several decades. Maybe you go out and spend 15 grand and really and really treat yourself. I, I just think we, I think we don't know. But the more of that money that people spend, the more inflationary uh, this will be. And I think it's plausible that this could increase the rate of inflation by by substantially more than than kind of a, a consensus estimate. Even though I think three tenths of a percentage point is a substantial increase, and that's something we should be concerned about. One more quick point: the president has said that fighting inflation is his number one priority. And it's not, you know, he does this, he keeps the Trump tariffs in place that are, that are, that are keeping prices uh, up. And, you know, that I think is, um, it demonstrates that his priorities are, are much more geared toward political considerations and much less geared toward the welfare and well-being of the American people as a whole. So your colleague, Jason Furman, former Obama economic advisor, tweeted, pouring a half a trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning is reckless. Um, the Penn Wharton model, uh, which scored this, said it will cost at least $605 billion and the cost could exceed $1 trillion. I mean, I just want people to soak that in for a second, a trillion dollars uh, of cost. 
as you said, Biden claims that he's his number one priority is inflation. And he just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. And if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way he claims that the Inflation Reduction Act reduces inflation is by reducing the deficit, right? So he just announced up to a trillion dollars in unpaid for spending. Doesn't that wipe out or more than wipe out all of the deficit reduction in his Inflation Reduction Act and make any claim that it was anything to do with inflation completely ridiculous? I mean, the short answer is, is yes. Let me give a slightly longer answer. The Inflation Reduction Act was, was never about inflation. And the claim that the Inflation Reduction Act is an act designed to reduce inflation is ridiculous itself, separate and apart from the student debt forgiveness uh, policy. Um, when you look at the two together, Mark, which is what you did in your question, it, it, it becomes even even more ridiculous. And and yes, I think I think you're correct that any inflation reducing effect that the Inflation Reduction Act might have had uh, will be swamped by any in, inflation exacerbating effects from the student debt forgiveness plan. But it also makes the in, Inflation Reduction Act inflationary because it was there was a balance between it, right? Wasn't there that the uh, that they were spending all this money on climate programs? But then they were reducing, they were raising taxes to reduce the deficit. So Penn Warden came out and said, well, it's basically zero effect mm -hmm. on, on, inf on inflation. But if you wipe out all the deficit reduction, which was reducing inflation, then the Inflation Reduction Act just becomes another spending bill, doesn't it? It's, it, all, it actually becomes inflationary. If you, if you put the two together, yeah. Yeah. And he did it like a week apart. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I do want to contextualize this. And again, you know, being the political junkie that I am, I want to contextualize it before the midterms. Help me understand why is it that inflation numbers are going down right now if most of the fundamentals of the inflationary economy remain the same and if we're pouring what Jason Furman, a Democrat, described as, as gasoline on the fire. Politicians of all stripes, Democrats and Republicans, get up before the world and you know, tell ridiculous whoppers. This current president is, is not unique in that regard. So why is inflation going down? And can this be sustained long-term? That's a, a, an excellent question. It's not clear to me that inflation is going down. If you look at consumer prices in any given month, there's a lot, a lot happens, you know, in a, in a normal month, let's say prices grow by a 10th of a percentage point or two tenths of a percentage point, something like that. Some prices are increasing by 10 times that amount. Some prices are decreasing by 10 times that amount. You know, something that economists try to do is to try to say, okay, what's the, you know, let's, let's extract the signal from the noise here. What's the kind of underlying rate of inflation one way that, that economists look at that that makes its way into the you know seventh or eighth paragraph of, 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 a, of a newspaper article about inflation is by just ignoring food and energy prices because food and energy prices are, are notoriously volatile. There are other more sophisticated ways that economists try to figure out what the what the underlying kind of rate of inflation is. And you know, when I look at them, I think that there's you know maybe some case you could make that underlying inflation is slowing. I think you could probably make a stronger case that underlying inflation is accelerating. The best case is probably that underlying inflation is, has been stable over the course of 2022. You know, why, so step back from that, why is headline inflation going down? Headline inflation is going down because, because oil prices and, and gasoline prices have been going down. That's that's a, a one big driver of it, and you know those prices are determined in global markets and 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 respond to you know big changes in in in, uh, in supply and demand for those commodities. So I wouldn't take too much comfort in that. There's concern that we're going to see another big spike in in commodity prices before the end of of the calendar year, which could reverse some of that. You know, I do think that over the next twelve months we will see underlying inflation slow down, but that's mostly due to the kind of economic disaster that um, the UK is experiencing, that, uh, that European nations are experiencing, that China is experiencing. It is mostly due to the Fed 
uh, and you're already starting to see the Fed's interest rates, interest rate increases have some effect. And uh, it's it's uh, also due to these higher prices that are keeping people from spending money. So, Mike, exit question. This has been fantastic. Um, now, we're not talking the, the legal issues. I think Mark and I will talk a little bit about that in the intro, but you're not a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Mark's not a lawyer. <laughs> so, so we've got a good guy. So we'll talk about it. <laughs> Uh, of non-lawyers here, which seems to be a perfect environment in Washington to make important decisions about the law. But no, what I really want to ask is, where do you think this is going to go? Do you think people understand all of these issues that you just explained? Or do you think that this is just yet another handout that people are going to take as a subsidy from the government in our ongoing in our ongoing process of becoming completely dependent on the federal trough? I don't know. Let me let me give you a two part answer. One part will be amateur political analysis, and then the second part will be amateur legal analysis. Um, <laughs> now you're really excellent. Part of the podcast. This is why yes. our podcast is so successful. That's right. So, <laughs> you know the the Biden administration. This is not the Biden administration's first attempt at um, at giving people uh, lots of you know thousands of dollars. The American Rescue Plan had a uh, you know another round of stimulus checks, which I think were you know a sensible policy in March of uh, 2020 um, when the unemployment rate went into the high teens or low 20s, and when there was a very real risk of um, a an economic depression due to uh, the pandemic outbreak and, and lockdown orders that were associated with that. So you know. Will this be popular? I mean, I think it's going to strike a whole lot of people as very, very, very unfair. And I think that that very plausibly could apply to a lot of people who get the money. I know if I got this money, I would think it was ridiculous. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't give it back, but it wouldn't like, I, I'd feel, I'd feel a little icky about it, you know? Uh, and so I haven't seen any opinion polls about this, and I'm not a public opinion expert, and I'm not a, a political expert. Um, but I can imagine this not being nearly as popular as the White House seems to think it will be, just like the expanded child tax credit was not nearly as popular as the White House thought it would be. On the kind of, you know, what's going to happen in the court side of this, I know I know even less about that than I know about, about public opinion. Uh, but um, what I what I uh, think is happening, there's some red state attorney generals that are looking at ways to sue. Uh, I think that um, I think that there are some uh, companies that process uh, uh, student debt payments who will see their income go down, their revenue will go down as a consequence of these changes. Um, because of the way their revenue is structured, uh, this will this will reduce their revenue. They're going to sue. Um, you know, my guess is that those companies will find a judge who thinks they have standing to sue, um, and then the Supreme Court will have to decide uh, this, that 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 question about standing. Uh, and um, I don't know how the court would rule, but I think that there's I think that there's I think it's. I think there's a near certainty that there are going to be lawsuits about this, and I think there's a decent chance that uh, that a that a federal judge somewhere will decide that those uh, those who are suing have standing, and then and then who and then that'll go up to the Supreme Court, and and I don't know what the Supreme Court will do. As a citizen, and here I feel like I'm on very solid ground uh, because I am a citizen. <laughs> um, I I think that whether or not this is technically legal. It is an appalling use and abuse of presidential authority. And we have three branches of government, and it is high time that at least one of those other two branches exercises checks and balances against the executive, against the presidency. I would love for that to be Congress. It was only like a year ago that Speaker Pelosi said the president doesn't have the authority to do this. Now she's doing cartwheels in front of the TV cameras. What I would rather have happen is Republican and Democrat leaders in the House and the Senate go on TV and say, Mr. President, this is an abuse of your authority. Congress writes the laws. You are not a king. And if Congress won't do it, 
that as a citizen, I would welcome the Supreme Court increasing the extent to which it uh, checks presidential power because we uh, saw President Trump grossly abuse presidential power. We saw we have seen President Biden grossly abuse presidential power as a bipartisan problem. It's been growing and building for a long time. And even if it's not technically unconstitutional or even if it's not uh, illegal in a technical legal sense, it is uh, not how our system is supposed to work. Well, Danny and I will talk about it in the intro, but I mean, he's using the HEROES Act, which was a law signed to prevent people who were called up to fight the terrorists after 9-11 from defaulting on their loans yeah. and doing using that as justification to have mass loan forgiveness, which is just that law that law requires a national emergency or a war. And he's using yeah. COVID as a national emergency, which is total horseshit. Yeah. That's, that is there the technical term for it. On my exit question, let me bring you back to your area of expertise. Last time you were on this podcast, you said that the best case scenario we had going forward was stagflation and possibly worse. How will this affect that calculus you made? And are we in a recession right now? Because we've had two quarters of negative economic growth, but the you know institutional media is helping the Biden administration argue that we're not in a uh, in a uh, in a in a recession, even though the last ten recessions have been, as you as you correctly pointed out, declared recessions after uh, two quarters of negative economic growth. Are we in a recession? And is stagflation uh, going to be worse, or what's going to happen? Yeah, let me let me answer the second question first. So I. I agree with you um, that obviously you, you uh, quoted my my uh, my tweet on this. I agree with you that that this effort to kind of argue that the rule of thumb that two consecutive quarters of negative growth uh, uh, is a sensible way to define a recession is is strange because the last ten times that's happened each time. Uh, we have been uh, officially uh, in a recession. And it would be weird if overall economic output were contracting over a six-month period. It would be very strange if that were not classified as an economic downturn or a period in which the economy wasn't growing in a, in a, in a, in a broader sense. It would be very strange if we had six months of economic output contracting, and that wasn't associated with an increase in the unemployment rate, that it wasn't associated with a decrease in uh, capacity utilization for American factories, if it wasn't associated with declining uh, numbers of people at work, if it wasn't associated with an increase uh, in the number of people receiving means-tested benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, So I think it's a very good and useful definition. Having said that, I don't think the economy is, is currently in recession. I expect that the GDP number for the first quarter, to, uh, which was uh, negative um, when, it, when it was published, I expect that number to be revised up. Um, and so I think when all is said and done and the dust has settled, history will record that the economy grew in the first quarter rather than shrank. And so I don't think we're, we're currently in a recession. To your second question, yeah, I think stagflation is is still the best case scenario for the economy over the next 12 to 18 months. Stagflation is, is kind of what the Fed is hoping for. So the Fed wants to substantially slow the rate of economic growth in order to bring inflation down. Uh, so you, know, you, you raise interest rates, that will get people to uh, want to borrow less money, get people to want to buy less stuff, get businesses to want to make fewer investments. That will slow the rate of growth of the economy by reducing economic demand that will slow the rate of price inflation. The Fed's trying to fine tune the economy. So it wants to it wants the economy to grow at a 0.5% annual rate or a 0.75% annual rate or a 1% annual rate but it doesn't want the economy to shrink. It doesn't want to go below zero. It doesn't want the economy to grow at a negative 0.5% annual rate. Uh, if the economy is uh, shrinking rather than growing, then back to our back to our earlier uh, conversation a moment ago, then, then the economy is in recession. So the best case scenario is that the Fed hits it, the Fed hits its target, and the economy continues to grow, but that growth slows to a snail's pace. The economy does not shrink 
And uh, as a consequence of slow growth and declining economic demand, consumer prices come down. I think a more likely outcome than 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 that is that uh, is that we actually do have a recession, and that the recession's you know relatively mild. It's nothing nothing like the recession that followed the 2008 global financial crisis. But the, the economy is shrinking and not growing. The unemployment the unemployment rate is going up by you know over a percentage point or two percentage points, something like that, and that that is what. Uh, ends up getting inflation to come down. We'll still have inflation well above the Fed's two percent target, but you know, hopefully, a recession uh, will lead to inflation no longer being you know eight percent or nine percent annual rate, things of that nature. A third option is a severe recession, and a severe recession I think happens if we're in a mild recession due to the economy collapsing a little bit under the weight of these high prices, due to the Fed increasing interest rates. And then something else happens. A massive slowdown in China happens, huge spike in global energy prices, some sort of horrible debt crisis in Italy that, that throws the Eurozone into uh, a terrible situation, an escalation in the Russia-Ukraine war, something, something, or, some, or something we don't, we don't even know, uh, something that, that's not really on, on the radar right now. I think a mild recession is the most likely outcome. I think that's, that's more likely than uh, than uh, what we're describing as stagflation. The Fed wouldn't call it stagflation. The Fed would call it a soft landing. I think a mild recession is more likely than a soft landing. Uh, but then if some external event happens, that could definitely change those odds. The Fed has stopped talking, thank goodness, about what you might call an immaculate disinflation, which is when the rate of consumer price inflation drops back to the Fed's target, but the unemployment rate doesn't go up. So the Fed uh, over over the summer stopped uh, suggesting that that was a likely outcome, and that's uh, one one step out of many the Fed needs to do to regain some of its credibility. Michael, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us again, and uh, we'll have you back on to see how your political and legal predictions have played out. <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm, happy, I'm happy to talk about about uh, accountability. That's what we're all anytime. about. Thanks, Mike. Take care. We'll see you soon. Bye. So, Mark, what do you think? I think Mike explained it really well. I mean, look, got millions of American parents who sacrificed and took on extra work, put off put off family vacations, made sacrifices to make sure to pay their kids college and make sure their they didn't start their adult lives in debt. They're screwed. You got students who made sacrifices not to take on loans they couldn't afford. They, cho- they chose to attend community college. They chose less expensive state schools so as not to load up themselves up with debt they couldn't afford. They're screwed. Uh, you know. And, and then you've got the working class in this country, people who did not go to college, who chose to pursue a trade or, or other, other work, noble work, and they're suddenly on the hook to pay for the loans of people who went to medical school, dental school, business school, law school, you're going to have janitors in in your kids' elementary school who are paying for the loans that those kids take out when they go, when they went, the kids that they took care of when they went to college. You got auto mechanics paying for the loans of customers who who bring in their luxury cars. I mean, next time you got somebody come to your house to to fix your plumbing or to, uh, to fix your air conditioning, why don't you ask them if they could kick in a couple hundred bucks to help pay for your kids' loans because they're just uh, they're just too damn expensive. It's interesting to me because one of the things that elevated Donald Trump to the White House was this sense of of grievance that the people in in what we on the on the various coasts call you know people in flyover country you know the plumbers, the electricians, the laborers, the people who work in coal mines, the people who the people who make this country run and make it run on time, make it run efficiently, the people who work hard every day for every bloody dollar. And one of the reasons why they voted for him, even if they had been Democrats before, was because they thought that the Democratic Party had forgotten them, that the Democratic Party had abandoned them to the agenda of coastal elites and, you know, the Bernie Sanders, the Ocasio-Cortezes, the Nancy Pelosi's, and they didn't like being told that the most important thing in this country that needed to be decided was who used what goddamn toilet. 
right? That's what, that anger drove Donald Trump into the White House. And we seem to have completely forgotten about that. I love the way you analogize it. Next time someone comes to your house to repair something, you should definitely turn to them and say, and hey, thanks for putting my kid through college. I'm really grateful to you because yeah, um, you know, you ought to pay for that because we want to get further and we needed that money. It's gross. That's my theme of the podcast. It's gross. If you wanted proof that Democrats are no longer the party of the working class, but the party of the elites, no, look no further than this. This is, this is, I mean, it's almost a caricature of what the Democrats are. This is a massive wealth transfer from working class Americans to people who, who are the, the Democrat voter, which I guess is why he did it. Urban elites, people with advanced degrees who just, you know, and, and some of whom, some of whom who made irresponsible decisions and cho- took on debt they couldn't afford, but lots of people who took on debt that they can afford because they know they're going to earn lots of money and fit with their fancy degrees down the line. And so of course they can afford it and we're forgiving their debt anyway, you know? Somebody, somebody tweeted out saying, oh, now th- Joe Biden tweeted out that some uh, a message he got from a family saying, thank you so much. Now we can afford, now we can afford to put a down payment on our house. I'm sorry. There's lots of people who, who can't afford a down payment on their house living in rental units because they can't afford a down payment. And you're taking money away from them so that those folks can pay for it. So those folks can have a down payment on their house. That's not what the Democratic Party claimed for years to be. But apparently it is. It is the, is the party of the elites, the coastal elites that has abandoned the working class. Bingo. So let's not expect that we see any different results because we haven't managed to learn any of the lessons of the past. Hey, folks, thanks for sticking with us. We hope you had a great August. Thanks to all the new subscribers to our Substack. Thanks to everybody. Please send ideas, comments, criticisms, complaints. You know, you know what to do. Thanks again. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 